and Lisa. And I'm Nick. And you're listening to It Takes Two, the podcast where two people take two movies with the same plot or premise and watch and discuss them. And continuing on with Pride Month. And you gave me a look there for a second, like, what? No. I was like, what are we continuing from? <laughs> yep. On the previous episode <laughs> of It Takes Two, um, is 2000, oh no, 93's Mrs. Doubtfire and 96's The Birdcage. Yeah. Both movies relating to men dressing up like women, starring Robin Williams. Yep. Um, so this is our 50th episode, which is exciting. Congratulations. Go us, get into 50 episodes. So it's a fun episode. These movies might not normally be paired together. Um, but they are both 90s movies starring Robin Williams about a middle-aged man who dresses as a woman in a misguided attempt to help his children. That's true. So, in my opinion, they're pretty close. Yeah, they are very close, actually. We, we, can, we can definitely talk about them. Now, one of them uh, is significantly more relevant to Pride Month than the other. Yeah. Um, and the other has a lot of uh, opinions that have not aged very well, in my opinion. So. Honestly, there's a lot of language in both of these movies that has not aged well. Mm. Um, I'm not going to say it. Yeah. Because it is offensive. But... Um, the birdcage used the derogatory term for gay men that starts with F, so you can you can do it. You can think that word yourself at home a lot, way more, way more than it should have in the nineties. Um, but it is a cultural like it is gay. You know the characters are gay men referring to themselves by that. So there's a little bit of the reclamation of language, which. You know, I would have interacted with people nowadays who would refer to themselves by that word, but I would not use that word because, (laughs) but it's like, I think it's similar to, I would describe myself as queer, Mm -hmm. but you feel uncomfortable saying the word queer in that context. Yes, because I grew up from an era where you used the word like, I have evolved, I have changed, and there is no derogatory word for, a derogatory meaning when I say the word gay, mm-hmm. but I do remember being a schoolyard boy, and someone would do something that was not heteronormative, Yep. Um, and you would then tease someone and accuse them of being gay. Yeah. Now, the weird thing, now, and this evolves mainly um i would say western white men mm-hmm. but there is a very weird culture of the this idea that um doing anything that is not hemorrhagic normative refers to you know it's 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 that kind of behavior Yet, straight white dudes do a lot of, like, borderline gay stuff to each other. And it is such a weird, like, I don't know if this is just a Western thing, but, like, white men are weird. And you only look back (laughs) at it now being like, 
What the fuck? It's a weird, like, it's almost like a repression thing in, in like you said, Western, you know, in, in quotes, Western societies. Um, because if you look at, like, you know, South Central American societies, um, Southern European, like, Mediterranean societies, it's quite normal to be um, almost flamboyant, but to be very... I don't even know, like, to express your emotions yeah. in a way that in some Western societies, um, not that those aren't Western societies, but you know what I mean, in what what you're considering, like, the Western societies, like, yeah. this, like, straight white man yeah. kind of thing, you're, like, taught almost to repress emotions and you don't talk about them, whatever. And that's also what leads to, like, the friend zone thing of this idea where, where these, like, dudes who have been told their whole life you know, you don't talk about your feelings, you don't share this, whatever, whatever, and then women who are kind of brought up um, by a similar society to be very in touch with feelings and to, like, you know, help people in that way, almost, yeah. to be very emotionally intelligent. Um, you know, this there's a stereotype, which unfortunately happens a lot, of this, like, dude who meets a woman who just like treats him as a person and then he's like oh she must be in love with me and i'm in love with her yeah and it's like no that's just being a basic decent person yeah the <laughs> the more we get into gender politics because it does sort of come up quite a bit in, in both of these movies yeah um which is why you know like i'm happy to segue into that um the the thing about Mrs. Doubtfire, um, why it's still a movie that's worth talking about, even though some of it is a bit dated, as you did mention. Yeah. Um, and I think Birdcage has aged better. Yeah, Birdcage has aged better. <laughs> um, it is under. It's the. It's not gender normative for the wife to be the breadwinner. And her to be the one that's super involved with work. Right. And, you know, when you get Robin Williams playing the fun dad and his parent, like the kids basically hold the divorce between them, spoilers obviously, um, hold the, the divorce between them against her, against the mum. And it's really, because I, you know, unlike you, I didn't grow up in a household with both parents. Right. It was one at a time. Mm -hmm. I spent time with my father, I spent time with my mother. Um, and as, you know, sorry to get into my personal life here, folks, but um, as you have pointed out, and this is all part of, this is a, you know, why do men start podcasts instead of going to therapy? Well, <laughs> I'll tell you. Um, it's, you pointed it out. I have much better a much better relationship with my father mm -hmm. and I look back with fond memories of my father yeah um where I don't have that on the other side yeah um and I spent more time with my mother because that's how society runs even though you know that's not obviously always the case but like um you know people talk about equality um, and wanting equality between, um, between, you know, the, 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 the sexes and, 
when it comes to, especially in New Zealand, I can't speak for every other country, but I've known a lot of, well, not a lot, but I've known people who have suffered from this, is even if the father is a better parent in a much better situation, the courts will always side with women. It's interesting because they explicitly touch on that, Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah. Because they want to say that's not what they're doing. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was interesting because it is, you know, in the, it was in the 90s. Yeah. So I would have thought that would be even more that they're leaning towards, oh, well, give it to mother. Um, but the judge expressly says, you know, we try not to side with the mother every time. We, yeah. we try to, like, evaluate the whole situation. And you've made improvements in these areas, but also you've done these things that you know, show that you're not ready for for custody in that way. And it's interesting because, like, I can understand that with one child. Yeah. But they have three children. Yeah. Why can't they have split custody of the kids? Like, I know that sounds really ruthless straight away, but I know for a fact that step-parents have, like, not picked, but, like, you know, there have been times where, oh, well, you're going to go live with your father mm-hmm. for multiple children. And yep. because sometimes, spoiler alert, guys, um, young men need a male influence in their life. Or, no, that's probably too... Um, a stronger dominating influence in their life that they can turn to when they have the problems that males face. And it could be the fact that they're, you know, it's that old, I know this is going to date me, but like, I'm old. Um, well, not really, but I feel it. Um, there's this whole concept of like, you know, kid talks back to mum and it's always like, well, wait till your father gets home. And the child being like, oh no, but you don't need that to be the father and mother. You just need, and it works in any case, you need the good guy and the bad, well, not the good guy and the bad guy, but you need... I think, and I hope she won't mind me saying this, but I think my mom was scarier than my dad growing up. <laughs> yeah, I, I can definitely get that. Um, <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't think, because it's, you know, these movies, if we look at them, the other movie is one where the you know the the child in situation where well, he's he's a grown adult well he's 20 years old at the time we meet him but he's been raised by two men yeah and didn't know his mother at all yeah he'd never is, met his mother which we'll get into later hopefully if i remember um it's he it's val val yeah. val is much more mentally mature and in a much better place yeah. than his fiance. Yeah. That whole situation, like, um, for a little bit of context, folks, uh, The Birdcage is an interesting movie because the overarching storyline of how they end up in the situation at the end of the movie, like, you get the introduction to the characters, but the overarching storyline in The Birdcage is. A little bit more sub-real, but also at the time it makes a hell of a lot of, like, real connotations of these over-the-top, um, 
and I'll get into this in a second, why I always find it really funny when this always happens, over-the-top conservatives um, trying to cover up their own personal issues within their political ideals, because he's literally a senator trying to get re-elected. Yeah. And it turns out the co-founder um, uh, died in bed with an underage yeah. prostitute who was also a person of color. Yeah, so he's a he's a Republican senator in Ohio. Yeah. He's looking to get reelected and he's started a board for like morality or something. Which is also funny because it also comes back to not the previous episode but the episode before that when we were talking about morality policing. Mm. And, you know, the, the, uh, for those who haven't listened, uh, it was related to um, Escape from L.A., um, where being a Muslim was a, made a crime in America. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you just lost, you were exil, exiled from the country. Yeah, so this guy, like, you know, he expresses some of these views at one point where he, you know, he thinks homosexuality is destroying America and all this stuff. And, yeah. you know, um, and he, it's interesting because they don't, actually play him as the bad guy um he's definitely got he's greasy I'll he's got that. views that are not good um but he has these morals that he believes in because as like a republican christian or whatever and he actually sticks to them whereas the whole problem with him is that his co-founder was also preaching these morals but yeah. then was the sleeping deviant. with an underage black prostitute yeah um, which was, yeah, every, every, it was bad. <laughs> um, whereas he is actually, you know, he's preaching these family values, but he also, like, is living them to some extent. Yeah. Even though he's, as you said, his daughter is in a less stable mental, or, you know, is she less um, well-rounded as a person yeah. than the son of the, the gay couple? It's interesting because... Um... If we were playing apples and oranges here, yeah, you have um, Val's influences are his father, who's a gay man, mm-hmm. who is a business owner. Mm-hmm. So he's working. Well, he's not even working class. That's like above. Yeah. But the work he's working in is not is is. Well, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say adults entertainment, but it's it's that's no, it's that's not. that's the issue that I think that's facing politics these days is people think drag shows are adult entertainment, but he's in the entertainment industry, mm-hmm. which relates to men um, performing musical numbers and drag in a club scenario, which is for the times that I've seen um, performances. Uh, honestly, not going to lie, ladies, but you need to step your game up, um, <laughs> have been absolutely fantastic. Um, and it's sort of that over-the-top adage that makes it so fun, and I don't understand where this like link between pedophilia and drag is, has come from in the conservative mindset at the moment. Mm-hmm. And it's so bizarre to me because it's such like... like I don't know how many, by percentage, because I'm you know I haven't looked into this, where the correlation it um it is in that because I don't think there is one. No. Because the the old um there was a there's a, uh, a an Australian comedian who's work I'm about to steal, 
um, but I'm like Amy Schumer, I'm going to admit it. Um, he says that being straight is more gay than being gay. What does that mean? Because a man wants a woman to look up, basically mother him, um, you know, soft and caring, and, and, and a gay man wants a big, strong man to fuck him. That is much more manly, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, really overgeneralizing. <laughs> true, true. Um, but it, it's it's funny because Val is the more mature. His yeah. household is the more stable, even though it is not gender-normative. It is... He's a much better person. Yeah, well, it's because he's actually interacted with a diverse group of people from yeah. a young age. Yeah. He's been brought up around people from, you know, different countries, different genders, yeah, different... immigration you know, is also a thing they've put in there, which conservatives aren't super happy with. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the whole, you know, he's been he's been a part of a society and, yeah. a, and a community that really feels like a community, whereas they're, like... Oh, I didn't even remember just until then they're also Jewish. Yeah, they are Jewish. Yeah. They're in, they've got this whole dress. But you see, like, there's a whole section where, you know, um, so they've decided, so her parents are coming to visit his parents, but they don't know that his parents are gay men. They don't know that they own a drag. It's not, even, it's not even they don't know. It's just they've that been told. Automatic, yeah. Well, no, but they, they've been told something different about it. Yeah, because... Again, like I want to point out, she l- lied. Yeah. The fiancé lies to her parents. Because she knows that they won't approve. Yeah. But what I was going to say was that if they decide um, they're going to just make it look like it's not owned, that you know, the apartment yeah. is not owned by gay men, and the whole drag community comes up and moves things around and goes and, you yeah. know, and you have like different people going and be, buying stuff from or borrowing stuff from different shops in the area and being like, oh, well, straight people love this kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, straight like, people going. love hunting trophies. And I, I, love, I replaced this with a crucifix and I they love, threw in these old books to look fancy, you yeah, know? The, the giant crucifix. Yeah. Because their house goes from like a home to like a weird... Like, they, everybody makes comments about it it's a, it, when they go into the house. It's just very weird. It's, like, sterile almost. Yeah, it goes from, like, a a weird, um, like, over the, like, you know, obviously it's a very over-the-top, like, I don't know many, I haven't visited enough homes of gay couples but I'm pretty sure the main decor in their houses aren't just statues with huge penises. <laughs> Not my experience. Uh, maybe I have to get out more. Um, but the amount of giant dick statues that they have to hide is hilarious. And then one of them just pops up later when he's looking for a piece of paper. Yeah. Because he's just, like, shoved it into a cabinet. Yeah. But then just, yeah, to replace, like, the art and the culture with, like, a giant crucifix and, yeah, make it a crucifix and make it very, like, Balenciaga sterile. Yeah. I feel like we need to specify that they are in Miami and Florida, and I think I know gay women in Florida who have, like, penis statues. Yeah. So maybe it's just a Floridian thing. They're, they're, (laughs) 
They don't put fl- uh, fluoride in their water, folks. They are raw dogging life. <laughs> it is a true, you know, all those stories about Floridian people. It's like those are true humans. That's what happens when the government doesn't interfere and put fluoride in your water. Not that I'm saying I'm not oh admitting that fluoride actually does anything. Well, other than what it's supposed to do, which is the teeth. It does do teeth. It does do teeth. Makes you grow extra teeth. That's why I have hundreds. So many teeth. Hundreds like a shark. You're just drinking the fluoride water. Yeah. Anyway, um, it's down, Mrs. Downfire, because I think we've spent a lot of time on birdcage. Yeah, well, I'm really interested to know yours, because we've both seen Mrs. Downfire. Before. Oh, yeah, like, I've seen it a dozen like, times. Yeah. But, dear God, it is aged now. Yeah, I uh, think it's still a good movie. It's still... It's still enjoyable. Still fun. Though but, I did, I took a note at one point, which was just um, literally that growing up is is siding with Miranda over Daniel. It's like realizing that actually he's been a shitty father, even though he's like the fun dad. She's the one who's earning the money, and she's also you know trying to get the kids to go through their education and you know try to give them a stable home life, whereas he's like totally impulsive and and like you know renting petting zoo animals and stuff just for the fun of it and and you know while they're kids it seems fun but he's actually you know it's not helping them okay i'm gonna interject here i'm not gonna disagree with you completely i think they're both shitty parents yeah, they both have problems. I, Miranda, I just think she's better. I think she's no, trying more to be a parent. The issue, I think he's trying to be a friend. The issue I have with Miranda um, is she even admits it that she always comes off as a bad guy. Yeah. But even when Daniel's not there, mm-hmm. she has to hire a um, nanny to look after them because she is not involved. She comes home at dinner time. Yeah. And I know, you know... It's a working class lifestyle that we all exist in, mm-hmm. um, in the West anyway, um, where your your dad or the your mum, whoever's working later, mm-hmm. is you know one person has to you know be home for when they finish school, and one person usually most people don't most people who get paid lots of money don't finish at three o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, which it sucks, and it's a reflection on our, our society that we're. The government needs us to have children so they have taxpayers to pay for the debts they're currently borrowing now, um, yet they don't want us to have money or a healthy relationship with said children. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all part of the system. And, yeah, I just think, like, looking back and watching Mrs. Downfire with a more critical eye and trying to take as much information in, I think they're both shitty. I think they needed to find a better balance. And I think yeah, but they would revive them talking to each other, and yeah. they never did that. It was I think like, that, funnily enough, they find it at the end of the movie, when they're co-parenting yeah, but as I, separated, divorced parents. I think they find it halfway through the movie when he's pretending to be when he's, he's, when he's Mrs. Downfire. Yeah, but if he did that, if he had done that, oh, he should be in a he should like be on jail. No, but what I'm saying is that like if Daniel. As Daniel, before the events of the movie, before it escalated to the point that Miranda wants a divorce, if he had stepped up and learned to cook and got the kids to do their homework and did all the things that he does as Mrs. Dowfire, which are things that he's doing, you know, 
because he knows Miranda will approve of them, which means that all along he knew that these are the things he needed to do to improve their relationship, to improve the you know his relationship with his kids. Yeah. He knew what he needed to do. If he had done all those things as Daniel before they reached that breaking point, they would have a great relationship. Yeah. But instead, he just he just like undid all her work so that then she would come across as the bad guy all the time. So he was he was putting her in a situation where she couldn't not be the bad guy. Yeah. Um and then you get this, you know, he does he it's basically they should have got a restraining order against him. So I understand why the judge at the end is like yeah. you're not <laughs> I cannot give you unsupervised visits with your kids. It'd be interesting to speak to a lawyer mm-hmm. um for funsies. Uh, or get a lawyer's opinion of like what crimes Daniel actually committed and what sentence he'd get because pretty sure you can't like do that. Yeah. Also, he committed like CV fraud or whatever. Yeah. You know. Um. Yeah, it's an odd situation. And it's yeah, it's it's odd. But he's so manipulative. The whole way through the beginning, until, actually, until almost the end of the movie, he's he's just very manipulative and narcissistic. It's also the, uh, the, the, the ripples of him doing, doing the, the, um, acting. Yeah. Also has consequences of people you really forget about. Um, I'm pretty sure... The lady, I can't remember the lady's name. The one that has to come and, like, visit him. Right, yeah. She's going to get in trouble. Like, she's going to have work problems, like, professional problems. Yeah, because she didn't she didn't realize that he lied about yeah. his sister. Yeah. Um, the other thing that always bugged me, and I, I'm not the first person to say this, um, the person I feel the most sorry for in the entire movie, is the bus driver. Oh, I think you're going to say Stu. No. I feel bad for Stu. I think, despite the fact that she wanted to have a relationship with that person, yeah. it is way too soon. Yeah, but it's not his fault that it's too soon. And no, he's very respectful. That's, that's that's again why we're saying that both of them are shitty parents. You yeah. go from I want a divorce, Daniel leaves, and then within a couple of months, like she's only been there for a couple like Mrs. Downfly's only been in the household for a couple of months before yeah. he's taking them out on dates and stuff. Well he um like, when he first contacts Miranda, it's before she asks for the divorce. Yeah. Because she gets that call right before she gets the call about the about the party that Daniel's yeah. throwing. So she was already... I'm not going to say... I'm not accusing Miranda of cheating, but she's, like, I already, think, like, checked out of it, like, interested in other pursuing other relationships. Yeah, I think it's a very much... And I don't think... Because at the end, there's, uh, there's no indication. Is there any... I can't remember now. Is there any indication that her and Stu are still together? Or is that... Oh, who knows? Um, because very much what it, what it reads as is... So her and Stu knew each other in college and yeah. dated, I think. Or were, you know, yeah. at least interested in each other. Um, and so she's in this position where she's in this marriage that is making her miserable. And this guy comes along who was like, you know, her who's, who's like 
you know, this perfect man or whatever and is respectful and is a gentleman and is nice and, you know, she loved him before and it's like almost her going back and being like, you know, oh, I wish... It's like, it's basically just wish fulfillment. It's like, oh, you know, yeah. I wish I was... That had been the path I had pursued. But the, the issue that I have is Miranda spends no time being trying to find herself yeah which is self-improvement which is one of the biggest things you have yeah. to do when you relieve a long-term relationship whereas daniel does that yeah but um, he i mean he does also obsess over and stalk his yeah, wife which yeah. is not healthy and but he does actually improve himself and you also get a situation where she again is now involved in another relationship where she's not going to spend time with the children yeah like there is no if he if they're working together professionally and then seeing each other, mm-hmm. which is like the whole thing because they he uh, sure originally contacts Miranda and regards well asks for Miranda to help with a project because yeah. she's like an architect or something. Yeah, designer. interior designer. Yeah, I think, yeah. So that's already she's spending personal time with him and also professional time with him. And again, the people that are getting neglected are the children in this situation. But they do hang out with the children. You know, they go to the swimming pool together, yes, they go for the dinner together. That's how you get... This is dating advice for guys who want to date single mums. Um, if the kid likes you, the mum will like you. Okay. I'll keep that in mind if I want to date any single mums. Sorry. I'll watch that. Um, <laughs> I'll watch you fail at that. Um, Rude. (laughs) Pepsi challenge. Um, In contrast and comparison, the relationship between Armand and Albert in the birdcage is so much healthier. It's so healthy. It's funny because it's so much more dramatic. Yeah, the the drama within their relationship is hilarious because it is so over the top and campy, and just. Kind of beautiful in the most vibrant, fur bowler kind of way. Yeah. They they know each other. They, yeah. like, really intensely, deeply know each other. They, like, they know every... So there's, like, moments where, like... Because Albert is very dramatic. Yeah. And Albert will be doing things or saying things or whatever. And Armand is just like, okay, I will listen to this. And then now I'll... Inter- I know now is the moment I can interject. Yeah. And the, But then also Albert is... Upset because um, he's, there's white wine in the fridge. And he's like, Armand, I know you only drink red wine. And I only drink red wine. So why is there white wine here? Yeah. You know? And, like, they just they just have obviously been together for 20 years or so. Because I know they mustn't have been together when Armand and um, Val's mum, you know, had, had sex. Yeah. And conceived Val. But... She asks when she, when he meets her. She asks, "Oh, how, are you still with Albert? How's yeah. how's Albert?" So obviously, very shortly after that time, presumably, you know, yeah. so probably around twenty years, him and Albert have been together, and they've raised Val together, um, and yeah, they just really know each other, and the, no matter how dramatic their communication is, they are communicating, and there's even like you know Val wants. Uh, Armand to get rid of Albert for so that he's not you know messing up the thing and then Albert is or you know Armand t- tries to talk to Albert about it and then he's like he goes back to Val and he's like nope I you know why why would I not let him stay you know yeah. you know he's, he's my 
he refers to him as his friend and companion, which mm. I don't think is accurate. <laughs> but they they've got a very loving relationship, even though it's very dramatic. It's it's very interesting watching yeah, like I said earlier, that their relationship is far more healthy. Yeah. Um it's really interesting that there is so much drama within their communication, mm-hmm. but their communication gets done, and it is very, everything is sort of like, almost borderline an act, like the the sequence in the beginning, where, which I think is a really important um, way to have communication within a relationship, and I wish, I think ours was a little bit stronger, um, than it, than it, it is and it could could be always better, mm-hmm. but it is very. There's a lot of validation, and mm-hmm. I'd love to see a. Um, what's the show we watch all the time? Which, uh, which show that we watch the, all the time? The 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 therapist and the oh cinema therapy. Cinema therapy. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was thinking of watching the birdcage. I'd love to see that their take on Armand and Albert as a couple. Because um, it's um, he comes off as very dramatic and it's, it's even like he doesn't want to go on stage yeah because it's like oh you don't love me anymore I'm getting old I'm getting this. he's just like no, no no like you know put all your like self criticism away mm-hmm. like I do appreciate you and it's just like alright I'm ready I'm ready for the stage now yeah yeah and it's interesting because uh, and this has come up quite a lot with um, us talking about it recently some of the best artists have the biggest criticism for themselves. Mm. And it's like, you you know, you we were talking about um, uh, the um, suicide of Chester from Linkin Park. Yeah. And it's very interesting showing how much pain that guy was clearly in. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a, um, it's I mean, a terrible, terrible... Robin Williams. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're talking about him in these movies. Yeah, and I know I've completely forgotten, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, that's that's a perfect example. It's just like the the people who present outwards the most dramatically tend to also be the people who destroy themselves internally. Um, it's it's really sad, but it's just I guess it's just part of the curse of being that talented. Um, Lincoln Park may not be for everybody, but like you can't deny that he Chester wasn't very talented. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's interesting having, yeah, sort of yeah, again, Robert Williams uh, and um leaving his leaving his family behind. Um, which sucks because they they obviously had like him and his daughter Zelda obviously had like a quite a close relationship. Yeah. Um yeah, they they are a lot healthier even though the, the you know the the discussions they have are very dramatic, yep. But there's never a question that comes up during their arguments, um, if it was about them. Mm. It's about a situation. Yeah. Which I think is a lot healthier. Like obviously, you know, we're watching a movie. We're not seeing, you know, it's on mm-hmm. twenty four, um, and and. 20 years worth of seasons of 24. Yeah. Um, but, you know, every time they, they communicate, they're communicating about something and each 
person is bringing how they want to deal with with the table and it goes through the whole like meeting of the family it's like we can do this it's like no 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 that's like bad idea Mm. but then it all sort of works not works out at the end it sort of ends up in absolute friggin' chaos but um I love that one yeah I, I feel like um the whole movie is an allegory for coming out almost yeah I could see that um because very much Albert is this very flamboyant, very openly out person. And they the whole thing is the Republicans are coming over and they want to hide Albert. Yeah. And present as a heteronormative family and, you know, a, with a, a, a husband and a wife or whatever. And then the... um. The mother, so so Val's mother, they contact her and want her to, to come to this, and she agrees to it, even though she's never met him before. Which and is she, super fucked up. Yeah, but like, he it, has a loving yeah, but family, I'm, and I'm he was just raised that, by like, Albert. And... Yeah, so neither in a point where it's like, hey, do you want to meet your son? But now it's like, hey, we need you to hide the fact that we're gay from a Republic senator. Yeah, she's like, like sure, let's do it. I'm like, what? Um, but she's delayed in politi- traffic and what's whatever. What's her political leanings? If I she don't know. <laughs> and um, Albert dresses as a woman and poses as Val's mother without telling anyone, yeah. anyone that he's going to do it. And they're like, oh, God. But um, where was I going with this? I've forgotten. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So this whole idea of like hiding it, whatever. Um, and then it's they come clean to the the Republican senators, but it's very much about they love and are proud of Albert. Yeah. And it's like, you know, and it's, you know, because it, it's, because the actual mother shows up, or, you know, the birth mother shows up. Yeah. And um, the guy, you know, the, the guy eventually says, like, how many mothers do you have? And he takes Albert's wig off. And yeah. he's, Albert, you can see it in his face, is thinking, he's saying I'm not his mother. Yeah. But what he says is, I have one mother, this is my mother, Albert. You yeah. know, and and Armand is like, this is my wife, yeah. Albert. <laughs> um, and it's very much this moment where they're like, no, you know, let's give up these pretenses. This is what our family is like, and this is, you know, the truth. And this is, where we are proud of it, and we, you know, we love Albert. Um, it's, um, the... Butler slash like Livin Agador Ag- played by Hank Azaria. That's just <laughs> it's so insane. Is he a poo? Is he a poo in The Simpsons? How many people is he in The Simpsons? He's I, a bunch of people. I don't remember. That character got re- removed. Oh, okay. Um, I, I don't think it'd be not retconned, but definitely removed because of cultural reasons. Yeah. And it's interesting because depending on which race, and if you talk to the people of the race that I've seen interviews of the person he's representing. Yeah. He's a positive role model. Right. In comparison to literally everybody else in there. And mm-hmm. he has the most character development in the entire show, but they're like, nah, it's racist. Yeah. That's like, um, that equivalent of... Um, I mean, it is. There are stereotypes and things. Yeah. I get it. But, I mean, he's also very much doing stereotypes and yes. stuff in uh, yeah. <laughs> Birdcage. He's fantastic, though. Yeah. The playing the, the very... He's their like, houseman. Yeah. But he's also like, he embodies literally every aspect to a cartoonish level mm-hmm. of like a young gay man. Yeah. And it's funny because apparently he, he was trying out two different voices and because he was afraid that that like high pitched voice 
was too stereotypical and it would be like offensive when mm. he talked to a gay friend of his and they were like, no, that one's the more realistic one, yeah, so yeah. go with that one. It's, it's very funny. Yeah. That they're like, okay, we've got to hide the fact that we're gay and there's their houseman out the back and only like a thong doing mm-hmm. gardening. Yeah. And they're just like, this is going to be difficult. <laughs> yeah, it's like, we got to get Agador in some clothes. And then it's like, he's not wearing the shoes. shoes. And, he, <laughs> and, he, and he puts on a deeper voice to pretend to not be yeah. their gay husband. And it's like, and he's like, I don't need to put shoes on. And he's like, ah, oh, yes, but when I put the shoes on, I fall over. <laughs> <laughs> And you're just like, no. That's because you're wearing shoes that are far too comically big for you, and you're also not wearing socks. Yeah, so he's just like, he's so clumsy. It's so funny, though. It's so good. What the hell was in that soup? It was purple, it had eggs in it, and it was... He said it was sweet and sour. (laughs) Sweet and sour seafood chowder. No, it wasn't, no, because they said seafood chowder because they didn't know what it was. Because he said there was prawns supposed to go in it. Yeah. And then and then he was like, why did you tell them it was sweet and sour? Or, oh, sorry, why did you tell them it was seafood cheddar? It's it's sweet and sour, like, poor man's soup or something. Yeah. I can't remember what way he said it. And it was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, I made it up. <laughs> this he's put together whatever he made I spent the entire head. day making this one thing because he was just so out, out of depth in the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's such a good movie, though. It's yeah. It's such an incredibly good movie. Um, and there's so, like I like I don't think we could even reach the bottom of the amount of stuff we could talk about, especially in terms of like queer cinema with with the birdcage. Yeah. Um, because I think there's a lot. I mean, I know we talk about gender politics, but like, gender in general is a question for me when it comes to Albert. Um, like identity. Yeah, because yeah. I don't think that Albert is a man. I don't think that Albert is, or is always a man. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I know it's classic for a drag queen when she's a queen to be referred to as she, her pronouns yeah. and by her drag name, um, which is what, Starina. So she's Starina. Every time she's performing, she's Starina or when she's in performance modes, like when they're doing rehearsals and things um, and they use she, her pronouns and then when he's Albert, he's Albert and yeah. it's he, him pronouns. But like, they refer to Albert as Miss Albert sometimes, and Albert is my mother, Albert is my wife, and Albert himself looking in the mirror, um, you know, talking about aging and getting less attractive and stuff, refers to himself as a middle-aged thing yeah. rather than a middle-aged man. Yeah. Um, so it wouldn't shock me if Albert is written deliberately or, or vaguely to be, you know, gender fluid or gender queer. Yeah. Um, I don't think he's... A, like a cis man you know I don't think he's a cis gay man yeah. doing drag um, but it's I don't know it's complicated yeah which which is sort of part of the charm and also the thing that scares the shit out of conservative people yeah because they can't explain it in a clear detail so therefore they're just like don't like can't understand and yeah. people f- fear what they don't understand yeah. and that's that's Highlight example in Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah. When, when the son. When the son walks in on Mrs. Doubtfire going to the bathroom, sees that she's standing up to pee. Yeah. Runs into it, the his sister. Now I remembered this as a moment that is inherently transphobic because yeah. I remembered him. You know the 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 quote which is she, she's a he she. Yeah. 
which is not great. But I'd forgotten that his first instinct is, you need to call the cops. Yeah. yeah it's like, I've it's... discovered Mrs. Deadfire P standing up. We need to call the cops. Yeah. That is a crime. It is a... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, what? Um, um, the thing that I actually find confusing about that whole sequence, and this is going to get into some meta-level shit for you sitting at home, so uh, wherever you are, on the way to work or in your job, um, is we see multiple times through the movie, pre the scene, so it wasn't like the, the what he was using changed. We see the way the suit is put on. Mm-hmm. And it is a one-piece... Mm-hmm. I don't want to say fat suit, but it is... An, like, it is a fat suit. Yeah, it's an enhancement. Yeah, Robin Williams described it as uh, like wearing a beanbag chair. Yeah. It's like half suit, fat suit, half beanbag. There's no way he would have been able to urinate. No. I don't think going to the bathroom would have been possible in that suit without like literally taking the whole thing off yeah yeah so that whole sequence doesn't make any sense canonically no. a lot of it doesn't because there's things like the actual mrs deadfire makeup is like in eight pieces yeah whereas we see it as one, one like, prosthetic slab. mask yeah. yeah um and there's like the bits where he goes to the bathroom you know in the when they're in the restaurant and he's doing the two things at once yeah every time he gets changed it's sped up because there's obviously no way for him to physically yeah, yeah. get in and out of it that quick so there's a lot of suspension of disbelief around the actual Mr. Deadfire costume. Yeah. But, um, yeah, there's definitely some, some dated opinions and dated language. Though I will say, um, when the, um, when he goes to his brother, so his brother is a gay man played by a gay man. Yeah. Um, Harvey Fierstein. I it? love Harvey. He's so He's fantastic. So Actors. He's so fantastic in <laughs> Independence Day to the point where I saw him on screen and with his voice and his mannerisms, I was like, fuck, I want to watch Independence Day again. <laughs> yeah, he's great. I love him. And he, um, but when, when Daniel goes to his brother, so Uncle Frank, um, when he wants to become Mrs. Deadfire, he says, make me a woman. And he's just like, oh, I'm so happy. <laughs> and I like love to think that he genuinely thinks that in that moment that Daniel is just coming out as a trans woman to him. Yeah. And he's just like immediately like supportive and yeah. proud. And I thought that was very sweet. Uh, and then you have, you know, Uncle Uncle Frank and Aunt Jack. Yeah. Um, who are, they're both played by gay, gay actors. But... Um, yeah, you get the, the he then is still supportive when it's just the weird um stalking your wife and yeah. kids thing. <laughs> the Mrs. Downfire um was I wouldn't say victim, but also fell into a there was a early on in uh I wouldn't even say early, but when people had the skills to do editing at home and place it on YouTube. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of um, cuts of movies where the trailer they were made remaking trailers to yeah. change the genre of the movie. Yeah. And um, the very popular ones turning into them like into thrillers. Yeah. So Mrs. Doubtfire worked Mrs. really Doubtfire well. worked really well <laughs> because it is super creep. Like yeah. some of Daniel's actions as Mrs. Doubtfire are super creepy. Yeah. 
Um, the other one that always comes to mind is the Forrest Gump mm. stuff because out of context, Forrest Gump is not a good person yeah. at all. And in context. In context yeah. either, yeah. <laughs> but, well, um. but yeah, that's the, it's, it's a... Um, it's very interesting because, you know, the audience is supposed to side with Daniel, but, like, you watch it and with the lens of 2023 and you're like, uh, they're both terrible. Yeah. Well, that's my opinion. I think yeah. they're both terrible. Well, I definitely, I think as a kid, Pop Miranda was, like, horrible and a mean mom and whatever. And it's like, as an adult, I'm like, she's trying. Yeah. She's not perfect, but she's trying to actually give these kids a life where Daniel was just like not helping the family and just because he wanted to be and it's a thing that you do see every now and then where it's like one person in the relationship you know one parent wants to be seen as like the cool parent so they'll like do things to make the kids happy but actually in the long run are not good or are making you know things worse um you know, and it, the fact that he was he had just lost his job, so he's unemployed. So, yeah. they're so he knows that they're living on one salary, and it's her salary. And he rents out, like, all these zoo animals and stuff. And it's like, how much money did you just waste on that when you know a, that your finances are going to get tighter? It was the 90s. It was the 90s. Yeah, it's still... You know, it's irrespons <laughs> he's irresponsible. Yeah. And by the end of the movie, he's much more responsible. But yeah. he still has done this weird, obsessive shit. And at the, some point, he should have realized that he needed to stop. Talking of obsession and um, the Stu's motivations aren't a hundred percent altruistic either. What do you mean? Well, because he when they're at the like pool club, mm -hmm. like is there a such thing as gated pool community? Like yeah, they're at a pool. Yeah. Okay. Private with open bars. Pool. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it feels it's San like, Francisco. It feels like a country club kind of thing to me. Yeah. Um, he's he's only dating. One of the one of the pros he sees is because he didn't have kids of his own, so he just gets to dating Miranda. He also gets children. Well, no, because he didn't want. Cause it's not that he doesn't want children. That's the guy says to him like, "Oh, I'm surprised you're dating so much children because you said you're never having children." Mm. And he was like, "Yeah, but I'm." pushing 40 and I don't want to end up alone. Yeah. So it's, the kids are irrelevant. He just wants to not, he, he's, he's, it's a selfish thing. He's not in a relationship because he wants to be in a relationship with her. He's in a relationship because he wants to not be alone. Yeah, which is. Not healthy. Yeah. That's really bad. Yeah. I think, can I just mention, not about Stu, but just while, while we're talking about healthy relationships, I just want to talk about Albert Normand again and say that like, it is not quite to the same level of drama but I feel like it's the closest I've seen to our relationship on screen <laughs> I feel like and I yes. did, and that's and it's it was kind of difficult to watch it because I've seen the birdcage multiple times before and I love the birdcage but I haven't seen it since I haven't seen it while I've been in a relationship yeah and watching it I was like oh no I'm Albert yes Albert is me yes. <laughs> I don't if think I'm was, as dramatic. If you just said that the other way around, I'd be just like, you are delusional. No, 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 no. Help. You, are, you are Armand and I am Albert. And that's, yeah. But it is a, you know, it, they do have a healthy relationship. It's just a dramatic relationship. Yeah. <laughs> but I, yeah, I just felt watching it. I was like, oh, this kind of is the, it's not quite our dynamic, but it's yeah. the closest I've seen you to are, it. To, without going into it, more of our personal stuff in this episode, um, yeah. you are very apocalyptic. True. 
It is. It is all or nothing. It is the end of the world. That's and an anxiety thing. It's very tiring sometimes. Yeah, yeah. But so I, do, I do so love you and I do care about you, yeah. but Jesus Christ. <laughs> I don't think has, I'm it, at the same point as Albert. Well, no. I can see, I can, it, it, it did hold up a little bit of a mirror to me that I, yeah. that that is what I could be. You, there, <laughs> the, there are things about you that your anxiety makes more positive for me because, um, that's probably sounded very odd. <laughs> the fact that you always have this very, like, overwhelming fear of being late. Right. Is such a positive thing to me. Right. Because and it's... makes me adore you <laughs> because I friggin' hate being late. Yeah. And your ability to be ready on time and walking out the door when we say... Yeah. Um, I'm not going to sh- shit on your entire gender, but um, I have dated women in the past who they would be getting ready at the time you're supposed to leave. Yeah, yeah. And it used to drive me absolutely batshit um, insane. I mean, I know people like that, and I feel like you have to, if you want to maintain the relationship, whether it's a friendship or romantic or whatever, you have to be willing to find a compromise in that. Like, I have a friend who I'm not sure... If they listen to the podcast or not, they'll know who they are if they do. Shout out to you if you know who you are. <laughs> but um, like that, they would say, let's, you know, do this thing at this time. And then that would be the time they start getting ready. Yeah. So me, I had to adapt to being like, hey, let's meet at this. You know, we're going to get this bus together. Let's meet at this bus stop at this time. Knowing that, I, that the time that we actually needed to leave was half an hour after that. Yeah, so see, then I would get there half an hour after that, and I would still get there first. See, the, the issue that I have with that, <laughs> um, in a relationship setting, like in a friendship setting, it's fine if you understand that the person has issues with arriving on time. Yeah. In a relationship, that that's very manipulative behavior. If you're like, right. you know, we have to leave at 2 p.m. knowing you have to leave by 3 p.m. Yeah. just to give that person an hour-long buffer. Yeah. The the difference. And that's just going to get exhausting as well. Yeah. Um. The issue that I always had, um. That I don't have now is. Some people have this. I don't know, like procrastination for things. Mm-hmm. And I do not have that problem. Like, um, I think it was a, the one that always stands out to me, that literally shocked me to the core. <laughs> Uh, was our first official date date, where we were dating, but then didn't know we were dating. It was very complicated. So it was our, it was our second date. Yeah. Because our first one was we hadn't kind of figured that out yet. Yeah, it was a first date that wasn't didn't start off as a date and then switched halfway through. Um. So it was a zero point five, um, and then one point five or two depending <laughs> on your perspective of it, um. You know, I was, we, we, without details, but we're like, we're meeting up with each other at a train station. Yep. And being that I always like to be early, thought I'll rock up to the train station and then wait around a bit and then. You got there and I was waiting outside. Yeah, and I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) This has never happened to me in a relationship before. 
Surprise! Yeah, like I've got friends who, you know, you'd be like, cool, so the movie's at 4pm, mm-hmm. go- and it's like, we want to meet at 3pm, and yep. at 3.30, they text you and say, on my way now, yep. and you're like, motherfucker, it's half an hour away. Like, yeah. I've had a friend before who was also very timely, and we would say, oh, we'll meet, like, it was, they were like, we'll meet at one o'clock, and then we'd both arrive at, like, 12.40, and be like, <laughs> oh, hey, how's it going? Let's go. But we knew it. Yeah. Um, you know, and we, but we also knew that if they weren't there until one o'clock, like, that's fine. But if it was after that, you'd be like, oh, what happened? Like, yeah. where they? Are you okay? Yeah. It, it, happened, <laughs> it happened recently. Did it? To us, yeah. Oh yeah, we were gonna be late for something, and we and I messaged and we were like, no, 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 before, no? previous to that, you were doing the after. I was gonna say after school. Oh yeah, yeah, I was doing I was doing my course, and we were supposed to meet up, and you and then I wasn't there on time because the course didn't end on time, and yeah. you fully panicked. Yeah. Because I'm never You're late. You're never late. <laughs> and I was just like, what You're is like, happening? Oh god, she's dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, back to the movies. <laughs> well, I think we were. Grand scheme that's all related. Yeah, to yeah, it's it's related to us being Albert and Armand. So if you want to know what our relationship is like, just watch the Birdcage. Yeah. Um. It's only slightly less dramatic. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because I didn't realize until I was looking at the notes, the IMDb trivia for these films, that um Nathan Lane had originally been considered to play Uncle Frank in Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah. Um, but Harvey Fierstein was like really wanted to work with Robin Williams and knew that he was going to be in a movie where he had a gay brother and was like, I need to work with you on yeah. this. Um, and Robin Williams said to Nathan Lane, I'll work on, I, I will work on another project with you, I promise. Um, and then with the birdcage, Robin Williams was cast to play Albert. Mm. And Steve Martin was cast to play Armand. Which would be a very different film, I yeah. feel. And Steve Martin had to back out of it because he had other conflicting commitments. Yeah. And then Robin Williams said, hey, I would like to step away from flamboyant characters and I don't want to just remake Mrs. Doubtfire. So I would like to play Armand instead mm. of Albert. And then they said, okay, who can we get to play Albert? And they were like, we need Nathan Lane yeah. to play Albert. And Nathan Lane was due to be in a Broadway production and they so he turned them down and they so desperately wanted Nathan Lane that the directors of the Birdcage went to the produ- the producers of the uh, Broadway show he's supposed to be in and were like please can you delay production wow. so they delayed production by a year so that Nathan Lane could do the Birdcage and then do the Broadway show and then he won a Tony Award for the Broadway show makes sense um, because he's fantastic yeah. he's so good um, I absolutely love Nathan Lane what I didn't realise, because obviously I didn't watch The Birdcage in the 90s, and I had no, like, awareness of celebrities to, to any degree in the 90s. Nathan Lane was not out of the closet at the time he made this film. Oh, okay. So Nathan Lane is, you know, he's known as a gay actor and a very prominently gay actor. Um, very well known on Broadway, and, you know, he's in a lot of TV. I've watched him recently in um, Only Murders in the Building. He's fantastic. He was in The Good Wife, you know. Um, great, great actor. And um, at the time of this film, he 
he was out to he'd been out to his friends and family for years. Yeah. So the other people working on the film with him knew he was gay. Yeah. But he was not openly out of the closet. And there's surfaced recently there was an interview with him um for something he's done on Broadway recently, which is like I think his fiftieth production on Broadway or something. Something ridiculous, like it's a huge milestone. Yeah. But they interviewed him recently. Um, and he talked about his experience with the birdcage, um, which I thought was fantastic because I was like, cool, we're going to be covering these, this movie in, <laughs> in like a couple of months. It's going to be great. Um, and one of the things he talked about was doing press for the birdcage and they went on Oprah and before they went on Oprah, he said to Rob, he was really anxious and really scared. And he said to Rob Williams, I don't, I'm not ready to come out of the closet. I don't want to come out of the closet on Oprah yeah. promoting this film. And, and, but he was convinced that, that was going to be, and I thought it was interesting because last week or in the last episode, we talked about, um, you know, the pressures of being in the public eye and people who've been forced to be public about like things like miscarriages and things that should be very private. Yeah. Um, the big example with that one is, is Mariah Carey on Ellen who where Ellen forced her to admit that she was pregnant in yeah. an interview. And then because of that, she had to then publicly announce that she had had a miscarriage. Um, yeah, but as, as, as we all know, I don't care if you're a was a fan. Ellen is a piece of shit. Ellen is a piece of shit. Yeah, true. Um, but Oprah has also done things like oh, that. I don't think to the same extent. They're but... all honestly terrible. Yeah. So, the clips have resurfaced of this interview on Oprah. And it is fantastic because Oprah is 100% pushing for Nathan Lane to come out of the closet. Yeah. Um, and she's saying like, oh, you know, you don't think you're going to get stereotyped into these girly roles and, you know, whatever. And, like, really pushing him. And every time she tries to go in that direction Robin Williams steps in and changes the subject wow. and it's just like what a great friend yeah. <laughs> and it's you know it's like she'll pose a question to Nathan Lane about it and then Robin Williams like switches into like flamboyant mode it's like oh my god girl like you know and it's and it's it's really interesting to watch be, knowing that context behind it that before they went out Nathan Lane said to him I'm not ready yeah. I don't want to do this I'm not ready to come out and he was like you won't have to you will not have to. And then he just, like, totally protected him. Um, so I thought, yeah, I thought it was really interesting to, to think about. Any other trivia? Oh, yeah, I'm sure I've got lots of trivia. I've somehow closed my notes, which isn't good. Yeah, I see that. Um, <laughs> where did they go? Oh, God, it's panic mode. Um, yeah, I tried... There is, there's a lot of trivia for both of these films, so I tried to not take down too much of it, but, like, there's a lot. Um... So, the uh, the vast majority of the tri- of the trivia for Mrs. Doubtfire is about Rob Williams improvising everything. <laughs> it's interesting because um, the scene that stuck out for Rob Williams, like just probably being given mm-hmm. free reign. Yeah. Is the voices sequence at the with, beginning when he's applying for a job? Oh right, yeah, yeah. Because it's, it's obviously cuts. It's it's obviously cuts because he's literally in different positions and it's literally like voice, totally different characters. Voice, things. voice, yeah. Voice. They obviously voice. just let him just let yeah. him go for it. Yeah. And then and then edited it together a bunch of them. Apparently, there's an R-rated cut 
of Mrs. Doubtfire because he just kept making like innuendos and things, especially around Pierce Brosnan. Apparently, he made it like his goal to make Pierce Brosnan break character as often as possible. So like the the scene where he's doing that Heimlich maneuver, he kept making like innuendos to him yeah. to try and get him to break character. Um, there's things like the um the icing on his face in that in that sequence where he's you know trying to hide that he's Daniel and not Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah. <laughs> um it wasn't supposed to melt. That was because of the lights. Yeah. So he totally improvised the thing about the cream dripping in yeah, and was like, yeah. Oh two thumbs all you you know. Um so he just totally improvised it. Um they also they had to set up multiple cameras on him every time he's on screen because they didn't know what the hell he was gonna do at <laughs> any time. Um, so, uh, the director, Chris Columbus, has said it felt like they were filming a documentary because it was not like <laughs> most of what Robin Williams is doing is not sticking to the script. He is um, very hairy. He, that's true. Yeah. Why, why did you say that? Just because I just pictured him as like, it was, the, when you say documentary, most people go to like watching people because I grew up Oh, you're watching... thinking of nature documentaries. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, fair. Um, the actor who plays the bartender in the pool scene, mm. uh, he's credited as Dr. Toad. His real name is Robert Todd Williams, and he is Robin Williams' half-brother. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. Um, apparently the film was originally supposed to be set in Chicago, and then they um, they were, did like location checking, and they went to San Francisco, and they decided to shoot there. Um, and... Chris Columbus, the director, had been living in New York with his family for years, and they relocated to San Francisco during the, the shooting of the film, and then they liked it so much they decided to just continue living in San Francisco after that, so, they, so he relocated his whole family there. Um, it also was supposed to be a much darker film originally, so there's supposed to be a lot more drama elements, and it was supposed to like really highlight the, uh, the toll a divorce can take on children. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the subjects we haven't really covered as the children. Yeah. Um... Because it's not, like, sorry to be really harsh, but they're, they're set pieces. Um, yeah. You know, in, if this was a television show, you would have uh, the daughter probably dating an older man who's out of her, like, shouldn't be dating, the, the, um, the middle child, the boy, being um, probably rebellious or, or violent. Yeah. Well, she's the rebellious one, really. Yeah. yeah the older child. But they and have, in fairness, pretty well-rounded children. Yeah. But I think it's mainly because they just don't get a lot of screen time. Mm. Like, there, there is... They're, they're, they have a far healthier relationship with Mrs. Doubtfire than they do with either of their parents. Yeah. True. Um, yeah, but they decided to make it more family-friendly, so they cut a bunch of the dramatic scenes. Yeah, but, but Robin Williams apparently drew on his real-life divorce um, for the dramatic scenes, so he was going based on his, his real feelings. And Sally Fields had actually initially declined the role of Miranda because she was having marital problems at the time. Jesus. And she thought it would be too real. Yeah. Um, and she, you know, she didn't want to just be depressed by it, so she thought it would hit too hard or too and too close to home. Mm. Um, and Robin Williams convinced her that she was the right choice for the, the role because of what she was going through and because she could bring that into the role yeah. and really empathise with her character. Um, it's like next-level method acting. Yeah, so essentially both of them were, were bringing their real-life experiences into, into that. 
Um, also, Pierce Brosnan apparently um, had kind of gone under the radar before he was cast in this, and this this film raised his profile enough that that's why he ended up getting the James Bond role. Be- yeah, I... <laughs> because he was so good, at, or because he was, you know, his profile got raised so much by being in Mrs. Deathfire. Pierce Brosnan is an interesting actor, because other than James Bond, like, I can't think of anything he's actually done that was... And I even I was going to be able to say good, but like, they were relying heavily on under under they were overestimating the power of CG in in his era of Bond because oh, right. you, you haven't seen Bond no. movies yet. Some of the sequences you watch now and you're just like, you think, you think Escape from LA is bad mm-hmm. from the CGI, and yeah, yeah. and it, it there are sequences. In the old Adam West Batman yeah. show, that that are just they don't even green screen. They just yeah. like just film them and did do like the same thing that they did with uh, like Star Wars because I don't think green screens were around in the that era. I might be wrong. They might have been like mm-hmm. very early on technology, technology. Um, but yeah, the Pierce Brosnan, uh, James Bond movies have some real janky. <laughs> Janky green screen work. Uh, I think he parachutes. Oh, there's a, an image in my mind, and I don't know if it's real or not. But because it's a James Bond movie, it could be. He rides a tsunami. In. That's Escape from LA. No wait. <laughs> he just rides a tsunami in the Arctic. Okay. But he's not like he's not surfing. He's like wakeboarding but after parachuting out of either a crashing plane it's all very weird but it it doesn't make me want to watch James Bond movies to be fair fair enough they're mostly misogynistic and like um, fantasy escape novel uh, fantasy escapism for for twisted men fair enough there's obviously people who like them for other reasons, but I was just fine. I like them. I like some of them for just how over the top and stupid they are. Yeah, sorry. Like Moonraker, mm-hmm. where they have like a laser battle in space. It's like, isn't this uh, Star Wars? He's he's supposed to be a spy. <laughs> like spies are supposed to stop wars from happening, not be like in the middle of them shooting people. Like, yeah. he's a bad spy. I'm not gonna get into Pierce. Um, Pierce um, like too much into it, but James Bond is a terrible spot. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, the, so the original screenwriter of Mrs. Deadfire was fired because the ending was too unhappy because the parents don't get back together. Um, and they made several rewrites to have a happy ending and then they realised that actually the original ending was better because they don't want to create the illusion that Divorced parents will always eventually get back together. Yeah. So they rehired the original writer and were like, hey, well, at least they rehired them instead of just got somebody else to yeah. copy their work. Because yeah. that would be some uh, plagiarism shit right Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Yeah. So they, so they were like, hey, sorry, you were right. <laughs> rehired them and then, and, you know, went with the original ending. Um, the address that Miranda gives on the phone for where their house is is the actual address of that house. And um, it is now a tourist attraction, which it became after Robin Williams' death, um, because fans flocked to that address after Robin Williams' death and um, turned it into a memorial. And it sucks then, if you owned it. 
Yeah, I guess. Well, they set up. I think they just set up a memorial outside it, and right. then it, it ended up being turned into a kind of a tourist attraction after that, um, because he was a very, very, very beloved actor, who is uh, sadly missed. Mm. Um. Box office ratings. Oh, I haven't even gone to trivia oh, on the birdcage. Sorry. sorry. Forgot we did another movie. Um, <laughs> similarly, along similar lines to to Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, Mike Nichols, the director of Mrs. of uh, The Birdcage. Mrs. Birdcage. Mrs. Birdcage. So Nathan Lane and Robin Williams are both incredibly well known for improvising absolutely everything. Yeah. Uh, like famously, I think we talked about it when we did our um, Lion King episode that like some of Timon's lines are improvised by Nathan Lane and they had to like animate things around it. Um, but yeah, so Mike Nichols required he made it a requirement that they had to get at least one good take of each scene stuck to the script before he would let them do their improvisation because <laughs> otherwise it's going to be like chaos yeah just pure chaos um i'm already mentioned the this sort of about the how the casting used to be you know how Robin was cast as as albert initially um oh yeah so this this i found very interesting so Mike Nichols, the director of The Birdcage, hired a documentary filmmaker named Rick McKay um, several months before he started production on Birdcage to go to major cities around the world, so Paris, London, San Francisco, Atlanta, and make a feature-length documentary about drag queens so that he could then show that to his actors as like research before they started production on The Birdcage. That's really cool. Yeah, so he literally paid a documentary filmmaker to go make a documentary about about um, drag queens. He made a feature-length documentary about drag queens just to train the actors on on the whole um, the whole community and industry and, and uh, what what they needed to be like. So I thought that was pretty cool. I wonder if it's in some like anniversary or special edition version of the movie. I don't know. Has there, has there been one of those? If there has been, I'm, I would like to own it. So I should look into that. <laughs> um, oh yeah, and I think that, yeah, because the only other trivia I had was about Nathan Lane turning it down and the production. So the production that he was in was a Broadway revival of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. And uh, yeah, so he won his first Tony for his performance in, in that Broadway show. Sure. Budget and box office. So they're actually quite similar budget-wise. Mrs. Doubtfire had a slightly small, had a smaller budget. So Mrs. Doubtfire's budget was $25 million. Yeah. Uh, Birdcage was $31 million. Um, these are both highly successful films, uh, but Mrs. Doubtfire was more successful, probably because it appeals to a wider audience, being that it's aimed at children. Yeah. So Mrs. Doubtfire made $441 million at That's box office. That's a lot of cheddar. Yep. And uh, The Birdcage made $185 million at yeah, box office. It still made more money than some movies, though. Yeah. And that's a, quite a lot. I mean, it's six times its budget. Yeah. So, pretty successful film overall. And it deserves that. It's a good film. Cool. So, anything else you want to say about these movies? No. Um, thank you for joining us for Pride Month. And yeah. um, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at it takes two underscore pod, Facebook and Tumblr at it takes two pod. Uh, we're on YouTube at it takes two nz, and our website is it takes two dot co dot nz. Thank you for joining us, and we'll catch you next time. Goodbye.